0: I don't know that I would have stuck with it if it wasn't for the continuous magic of people coming out of the woodwork to make it happen. A lot of times I become the face of it because I am the executive director and I am one of the founding members of it. But there's so many other founding members, there's so many other people who stepped in for two years, three years, and then had to step away. Without their energy, there would be no Boston Food Forest Coalition. And so the story really isn't about me. It's about grassroots energy, people really coming together to share with each other and believe in each other and believe in community. And to me, that's a very powerful message too.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Listening Podcast, brought to you by We Are Open Circle. This is a show for anyone wanting to understand the realities and key principles of organization and human development and change. We bring you into the lives of our remarkable guests so that you can understand the challenges they've faced and the practical lessons they've learned so you can live better achieve the success you really want and adapt to thrive we're your hosts adam Rumak and miriam jones you can join us each week as we work out how to live more purposeful inspired lives for ourselves our organizations and our communities
2: welcome orion i first came across orion when i was licked this article called the hope of the global citizens movement I read through it and I and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm gonna reach out and see if I can I can find him. And I I reached out on LinkedIn and then I saw the Boston Food Forest Coalition. And I was like, oh, more interesting. And so it's such a pleasure to have you here today, Orion, and to hear your story. Welcome, welcome.
0: Thank you, Miriam. It really I'm really glad you did reach out. It's been lovely to be connected. So thank you.
2: And I wanted to start. Actually, I haven't asked this question before, but it came to me as as we were coming in today. If you were to characterize your journey to this point, if you were to give it like it's a journey of dot, 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 what would it be?
0: Yeah. I think a core question that occurred to me at a young age is a question that I think increasingly is being asked in our culture. But when I was a young kid coming of age in the 1980s, I was very aware that some people have a lot and some people don't. And I just didn't understand why society was structured the way it was as a child. And I was curious, like, why do we put up with it? Why is it acceptable that we have this world the way it is? And what would it look like if we could? start again at first principles and design society in a fair way. Like I remember being fairly philosophical about it. And I think that led me on a series of questions about humans and the human animal and the nature of what we need in order to function together and hang together as a as community. Got very interested in political science and the theory of democracy, and just had the opportunity to keep exploring that question in post-Civil War, post-conflict situations. Like I spent some time in post-apartheid South Africa after the Ash- African National Congress came to power and was rewriting the new constitution. And as a very young, young person, I was able to play a very small role and some of that and just be exposed to these tremendous questions and just keep that reflection alive in my heart. And I'd say another piece of it for me was just my family is very conflictual and very opinionated and very righteous. Out of need, I was curious, like, how do we create consensus? How do we do better conflict engagement and transform conflicts?
2: Oh, you've left so many threads open there. (laughs) I'm going to just pull at one. Was there an incident that made you like, personally aware of the inequity when you were young? Can you remember a person or an instant where you, where you had that awareness of how inequity affected people?
0: I guess like, some of the stories that, that come to mind for me are when I started more like high school into college, volunteering. One of the early volunteer experiences I had was on an American Indian reservation in Montana, just helping out for a summer and just hearing their stories and understanding a little bit more about the, the legacy and the history of like how the reservation got created and and governed and ways in which things, rules and treaties weren't respected and and, and what that's left, the, the scars on the community, just the level of alcoholism and pain that was present. Part of that summer was building an alcohol-free teen center so that there could be a space for teens to gather without alcohol. It was a well-designed program. It brought... You know, a lot of children from wealthier suburbs in America into a service activity to to both learn and reflect and grow as individuals, but also to, you know, meet the community they were working in that summer. And then in college, I just continued in that vein. I would spend my um, spring breaks often going down to the communities in the south that had been hit by hurricanes and were either helping them rebuild or tear down the the storm damage so that they could rebuild and just getting involved in that and finding a lot of meaning and joy in in that type of service. Just the tangible action of, you know, taking a sledgehammer to a wall and breaking it down so that we could create space for something new.
1: I mean, first of all, I just want to say I appreciate this from a personal perspective, a South Africa connection. I spent a year there in in college and it was the 10-year anniversary of the end of apartheid. And that was probably the first time that I saw the global version of inequity. I mean, I had I'd lived in a quite privileged area and then I'd gone into the center of Los Angeles with my dad to work since I was a young child and, and had seen sort of that spectrum, but being in South Africa. And then the, the difference in the perspectives on racism in particular and how kind of on the surface it was really showed me a lot. So I appreciate I'm just sharing that from a personal place. Yeah having spent some time there and that you helped to participate in that process.
0: I resonate also with how, I think this is partly what you implied, but that you know, racism is socially constructed and that means it's socially constructed differently in different
1: countries. Exactly. Yeah. If you're an American visiting South Africa, you're hopefully, uh, definitely a college student is aware of the legacy of apartheid. And it shone such a light because it was so recently apparent, whereas we didn't grow up I'm assuming based on the story that you told that neither of us grew up in a time where racism was entrenched in the, in the, the laws themselves explicitly. So going there and seeing, I was aware of that racism so much on the surface and so much recent, so recently in the laws um, that it definitely shown, shown a light. But what I, what I want to witness back is just a way of, as Miriam's leading the, the, the interview, and I'm here as a, as a witness, primarily the story of, growing up in an environment where conflict exploration conflict awareness being in the tension of a conflictual environment taught you something that you're now using to then help to transform communities and that gift and wound relationship you didn't talk about it as a wound but i imagine there was oh yeah it had enough of an impact that there was wounding and to bring that out to the surface right from the beginning and speak to that the personal sort of orientation that you have and the investment that you have based on your own experiences that also gave you a number of skills. I wanna witness that back, um, elevate that and the honesty. You know, some, some circles might call that the wounded the wounded healer or the gift in the wound aspect of, of doing potent work in the world.
0: No, I appreciate that and I, and I resonate. Like I, it's both a strength and a weakness, right? I've heard someone, maybe it was Meg Wheatley say, a weakness is an overused strength, but there's a part of me which is comfortable with the notion that we do have conflict and that that's part of the world. And it's neither a positive thing nor a negative thing. It's how we engage it that transforms it either into something where we learn and grow in a positive way or fall apart and, in a negative way. So it's the engagement, but the reality of it is that it's part of life. And, and human beings being social animals, you know, if we're going to get something done, we got to learn how to engage. And that people are the only game in town is something I often find myself saying.
2: Where did the impetus come from to volunteer? Like quite early on, you stepped into volunteering and action. It sounded like it continued to be a fire uh, within you. Where did that come from? Yeah, it's,
0: it's a good question because I ask, often ask that question to myself now that I'm almost 50. I'm going to turn actually 47 this year, so I'm rushing it a little bit. But like, like, why am I doing this work? You know, I could have been and actually was recruited out of college to like go to Wall Street to an arbitrage firm and make a lot of money turned it down. So what's up with that? Like, <laughs> And I, I just can't imagine it being any other way, just given who I am and how it started. I think at a very, very young age, I was overwhelmed with an existential crisis about what is the meaning of this life we're living and just not wanting to live a life rooted in fear. And, and a need for safety and security, but saying, I want to take risks and I want to experience and I want to understand. And this is my one, one lifetime to do that. And I'm going to you know, try to be powerfully self-actualized in this life. Like, that, was, that was a core value for me. Exactly what that meant at a young age, I didn't really know. And I just remember like long walks with my dog and at night like, th- reflecting on like what do, what, do, what do I need to have a meaningful life? I think romantic love, meaningful work connection to family and friends do i need more than that like just like all that stuff was like alive for me at a very young age partly it's it's a jewish background my father's jewish and had a long series of conversations about his values and how to express them in the world with us as kids growing up and you know that was a theme that would just come up again and again in, in conversations and i have a a cousin who became a college professor who was at that time a radical environmental activist and was really excited about the more radical edge of the environmental movement. And he and my dad would be arguing they're older than me, and I would be sitting in the backseat of the car listening to their arguments. So I'm sure that influenced you know, my thinking and trying to make sense what they were shouting about. And I, and I think just like, I don't know what it is, but just a, a, a deep sense of care for people and nature was there at a very young age as well just really caring about animals, really caring about the natural world, really wondering why the world I was born into was shaped the way it was and how disrespectful and cruel it could be. And then really feeling it when people were suffering and just looking people in the eye a lot, not being able to look away, I guess. Um, and I maybe part of that is also looking into things like the Holocaust. I remember reading about that in junior junior high school you know, sixth, seventh grade, coming across that and and wondering, like, how could a whole society become so genocidal? And then, you know, so slowly growing up to the awareness that, oh, that genocide has taken place and that America has participated in that. And I spent two years living in Guatemala after their civil war, where there was significant genocide against the indigenous peoples of Guatemala. So I think that, more than anything, opened my eyes in a more radical way to what does it mean to be outside the borders of empire? The privileges of having been born inside the empire, just the suffering that people routinely have to deal with. Like, there's some statistic I remember, I don't know what the actual number is anymore, but I remember reading at one point, three billion people don't have regular and consistent adequate access to clean water. That's, you know, at the time, I was like, that's half of humanity. That's half of humanity crying out. (laughs) I mean, it's just not possible to like turn away from that in my mind.
2: So, how do you move from, from that? You know, there there was a little bit of a theme earlier on that you were talking about is, you know, the philosophizing and ideals of what should be and then the kind of the pain and suffering of what was. How do you kind of move from philosophizing and thinking about it into the sort of action and work? What's, how do you hold those two things between, you know, what's mine to do, action and work and the philosophizing, knowing that now you're fully in the work of it? What's the relationship between those two?
0: Yeah, I think it's a tough one because I think that I have certain natural gifts that would have lent themselves to being in the academic world. And I was definitely nurtured by my college professors in that that direction and chose to step away from it precisely because I wanted to be less theoretical, less writing books and papers that very few people read or just sat on a shelf somewhere and I wanted to see some impact in the world. I think like maybe 40% of who I am, my personality is like this intellectual guy and another 60% is just like more craftsy and wants to make things and get my hands on the dirt and bring people together and convene events and projects. Like, so I just want to make things go. So finding the right balance has been hard. It's been actually a struggle in my life to say, what's the path that I'm walking? And as a result, I, I don't really have a traditional resume and a traditional career path. You know, I've been sort of making it up as I go along and I've been supported and, and nurtured to do so and privileged to do so. I'm not sure what your question was. I'm, I lost track.
2: <laughs> you answered it. <laughs> it, was, it. It was the tension between those two things. And I think right. having started my cognition of you through the hope, the article that you wrote, which was quite academic which and was based on a story of hope. This is what I hope we can do together to jumping into the work that you're doing now. What was that jump? How did you discover the Boston Food Forest Coalition and what happened?
0: So just following the thread of political science and democracy and spending some time in South Africa. I also spent some time during my college years in Israel, Palestine, just trying to talk to people about the possibility of peace there and did what they called a peace studies mission that they sent college students to sort of interview players on both sides of that conflict. Then I moved to Guatemala, spent some time post-Civil War there, and then I got involved in a project that was looking at these big questions of how do we do peace building work and re-stitch the fabric of civil society together after it's been rent asunder through violence and and intimidation and, and authoritarian dynamics. And I got really sort of frustrated with some of that, again, that trying to draw lessons learned from these really big challenges and sort of looking at at these puzzles. And I thought I need to go back to graduate school. So I went back to graduate school. While I was there, I ended up focusing more and more on urban planning and the questions of like whose city is it, how do decisions get made about the urban environment really have always been present in my mind because you walk out your front door and you're like, I didn't Choose this. Who chose this? And what role do I have in in shaping this? I've really felt that in Guatemala City more than anywhere else. Just like, you know, when the dump catches fire and the and the air is polluted from that fire, and it doesn't matter if you're in a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood, you all breathe that same polluted air. So I was like, what is this wealth that shits on itself that it won't invest in basic infrastructure in its own community? Because you know, Guatemala is the wealthiest country in Central America but it's not necessarily like Costa Rica you know it has a different dynamic. so I was like trying to figure that out. So I did go to into sort of an urban planning urban studies direction and then I when I came back to looking for work after graduate school I went right back into international questions of sustainable development and how we're going to deal with climate change and I joined the Telus Institute where I wrote this paper, called the Hope of the Global Citizens Movement Donna the Cosmopolitan and in that context i uh, in some ways it's almost like it was so intellectually rigorous like the the Tellus Institute was easily 10,000 feet in the air but in a very rigorous way trying to sort of like look at this complex challenge how do we chart a path from the world we're in today to a world that's rooted in sustainability and equity and And it was engaging, and it was my job to engage scholars and activists on these key themes. And so I got very, very activated up here in the head and frustrated that it was like all up here in the head. And I wanted to get my hands down into the dirt. So I made a very conscious decision to leave the TELUS Institute and leave that role. In retrospect, maybe not the best career decision because it was a network that I had invested in and built relationships with. And I basically walked away. And got involved in a very local project, which over time emerged to become a community land trust that could own land and redevelop vacant lots in the city as the new commons, as, as edible food forests, parks that could also host cultural events and bring neighbors together in a very tangible way. And I think what led me to that was my, the neighborhood I was living in at the time in Boston, Eggleston Square. You know, it had been a very violent neighborhood when I moved there. I could literally look outside my window and see drug deals going down. There was a flop house across the street where you could see prostitutes coming and going day and night. Used needles that wound up in our yard, that you know, and there was gunshots routinely throughout the the warmer months. And that was a lot less violence than had been there historically. And one of the things that we did was there was a vacant lot around the corner from our house, and we started asking the neighbors what's the story behind this lot, and and. Uh, you know, it was a trash lot. It had uh, tires and TVs and car parts and more more hypodermic needles and nip bottles. It was just a trash lot. And um, we said, well, what would you like to see happen here? And to a neighbor, everyone said, anything. Anything's better than what's going on currently. So we just decided to go and clean it up. I mean, it was a very simple gesture of taking responsibility for what we could control, right? And we just decided that we were going to convene a work day and we are going to pick up the trash and we are going to plant flowers to beautify it. And we notified the city of Boston. We said, we're gonna go do this. We know that it's owned by the city. It was repossessed by the city when a house burned down. Uh, We did some research. And the city of Boston said, don't do it, don't do it. You don't have insurance. You're not authorized to do it. And we said, great, we'll be there on Saturday. Come tell us in person not to do it. So it was fun. It was collaborative. It was cross-cultural, cross-language, cross-class, cross-race, and so alive. And we did that for a number of months. And then in October, a young man was shot and killed right in front of this community space that we were creating. And that was horrifying and scary. And we came out for our, our workday to continue planting and cleaning it. His friends and relatives were there holding a candlelight vigil. And at first there was an instinct of like, let's let them do their thing, their morning. We're here to clean up. We'll just sort of like keep our distance and respect each other. But people involved in my group were like, nah-ah, these people are hurting, let's bring them soup, let's bring them water, let's invite them to plant a blueberry bush and share some words in, in memory, let's hang a banner on the chain link fence and have them write, rest in peace. And other folks were watching from their windows and they saw this dynamic happening of, of what felt like real healing and connection and, and mourning and grief. And it it had ripple effects throughout the whole neighborhood. I could go on and on. It was actually a very complicated story. But the core takeaway for me was like, oh, this is so much more than building one little garden. You know, this is this is where it's at. This is what it means to create community in a diverse urban environment. And the, the fact that it had so many ripple effects throughout the whole neighborhood made me think, wow, we just need more of this. And I think that's what really brought me into doing the Boston
1: Food Forest Coalition. Wow. I love that it sounded like you tried to think your way into getting your hands into the ground, both metaphorically and literally. And then you, if I was going to tell this story in, in sort of an anecdote, you looked at the close, you looked next door and found yourself working on something and it all grew from there. Yeah. So you came from that theory. Like I heard that tension really in the question that Miriam asked you, how did you move from sort of theory into into the doing or academia into action. And there's like almost this false, I don't know, expectation that somehow it was gonna be easy. And I say false because I think so many people have this idea, I, I know I do. Like, I'm just gonna find the one thing that encapsulates everything that I am and and wanna be and have been. And there's gonna be an easy title for that. <laughs> and somehow it will be simple. And if if it's not, it's a tension that I've been navigating my whole life. But then the truth of your work from what the story you just told was like, no, we just looked at the lot next door, and everything happened from there. It's like there's a poetry in in that story that I, I really appreciate, and I am sure it's yeah, more complex I, than you yeah. you said. There, it was more complicated. But
0: no, I love how you're how you're reflecting that back. I really do appreciate that because it, it again, it's it's resonant. It's like there's there's a starting point, right? It's like you pull on any one thread though, and you realize it's woven into the whole tapestry. Yeah. And that's also been part of why the Boston Food Forest Coalition has has captured my attention and interest for so long. It's like, it's this one little spot, let's say we're transforming a 5,000 square foot vacant lot in the city, and yet it's holistically intertwined with so many of these diverse systemic issues that we're trying to address, right? So... And I, th- and I think there is also just this tension, like if you're really intellectually rigorous, it's like between theory and empiricism, right? So it's like, there's all these theories about how social change happens. And then there's like, oh, let's go out there and try it and see, see what the world tells us is going to work or not, right? So in some ways, I just chose the empirical path.
1: And so what what happened next? How did this become an, an organization? And-
0: yeah, at that time, I, w- I had a job that required that I do community organizing around the framework of a new economy. Like, how do we generate initiatives at a local level that tap into this, try to transform the whole institutions of our economic system so that they're more cooperative, like looking at models of of commoning and collective ownership, uh, worker-owned cooperatives, community land trusts. Like, we were thinking about all these things that prior generations of activists and communities struggling for survival had created out of necessity, but could we root a whole new economy in these institutions rather than the institutions we have currently? And could we generate that locally and make that relevant to people in a diverse urban neighborhood like the one we were living in in Boston at the time? So I was doing that work anyway, as being paid to be a community organizer and was convening you know, the state of our neighborhood forum where we brought together community leadership and activists with elected officials and we had a real conversation. What's the state of our neighborhood and how do we, you know, prepare for climate change and the rising costs of food and fuel? Like we saw all of the writing on the wall about what we're dealing with right now, but we saw it, you know, ten years or more ago. And we just wanted to say, how do we start taking action today in anticipation of what we can see coming down the road? And one of the things that came up was two veterans from the military, one from the Coast Guard and one from Afghanistan, had been shopping around this idea of a food forest in Boston. And they had been inspired by the one in Seattle on Beacon Hill in Seattle. And so they had been talking to all these community-based organizations and nonprofits in Boston to get endorsements. And they showed up at one of our big community events and they announced that, like we often had people stand up and announce what project they were working on. And so they announced their food forest project and said that they had run out of energy for it and they wanted to hand it off and that they had this list of endorsements and they had the concept, but that's as far as they had taken it. And I just watched as an organizer how many people flocked to their corner of the room to find out more versus any of the other projects that were happening that day. And you know, as an organizer, you're trying you're trying to understand the path of least resistance to engage with people where they're at and clearly food-related projects. Bringing open space, parks, and nature into the city, like there was so much energy organically. And so I I continued to play my role for a little while of just nurturing that energy, you know, helping them convene meetings, not leading those meetings, but really being in the background as a facilitator and convener so that they could shape it for themselves. So they came up with the name Boston Food Forest Coalition. You know, other neighbors stepped in to lead that initiative and reached out to Mass Audubon's Boston Nature Center to form a partnership with the only urban wildlife sanctuary that Massachusetts Audubon has. For a while, it was just this joyful energy of neighbors from Jamaica Plain, Roxbury, Roslindale, Mattapan, Dorchester coming together and, and having done different projects. And I was actively involved, as I mentioned, with a project in Eggleston Square. That was also you know, it was a, a personal project of, of my volunteer time. But it connected into this whole big question that was swirling around, how do we defend these spaces that neighbors have come together to create when there's so much gentrification and development going? And developers routinely swoop in and gobble up parcels that they want without any community input. So we were just thinking about that. And you know, being the behind-the-scenes person, it was my job to do the unglamorous work. So I was talking to other nonprofits and other organizations, could you see taking on these initiatives and supporting them and nurturing them and and, and the land that that comes with them. And everyone was too busy with their own projects. So that's when we basically came to the notion that we would need to incorporate an independent community land trust to own the land if we wanted to ensure that it wasn't going to be gobbled up by future development. And around that point, some of the key earlier volunteer leaders had to step away and nobody else could afford to quit their job and, and step in and into an unpaid position and and take it that next step but it had been going for about a year and a half at that point and i was just like i don't want to see this energy fizzle so i left my role as sort of community organizer on the new economy transition and just stepped into how do we get this community land trust built i had the skill set and the knowledge about like what it what it takes to incorporate a nonprofit, and pull together you know the pro bono legal support and the board and all the different pieces that go into that and one thing led to another, and, and here I am seven years later, <laughs> continuing to work on it, because when you first start a project, I don't think you ever really know what you're getting into <laughs> and just how many details. But like the idea of a community land trust or collective ownership of land, like that really appeals to me from a political science intellectual point of view. So here is a chance to make it real in the city and it's been growing. I don't know that I would have stuck with it if it wasn't for the continuous magic of people coming out of the woodwork to make it happen. A lot of times I become the face of it because I am the executive director and I am one of the founding members of it, but there's so many other founding members, there's so many other people who stepped in for two years, three years, and then had to step away or moved out of town. Without their energy, there would be no Boston Food Forest Coalition, and so the story really isn't about me. It's about grassroots energy people really coming together to share with each other and believe in each other and believe in community. And to me, that's a very powerful message too.
2: I guess what I'm really interested in, in in your work over the last seven years, what have you seen that's been radical? You know, we often think about radical changes, you know, like, okay, no one's driving cars anymore, or we're flying in different ways, or do you know what I mean? But very interested if you've seen that or experienced radical transformations in the kind of local hands-in-the-dirt work that you're doing and what they look like.
0: Yeah, I I like to think that community land trusts are a radical invention. You know, it it has a long history. It started off as a vehicle in the civil rights movement to help black farmers gain access to land. Then it was taken over by folks like Bernie Sanders when he was mayor of Burlington and other activists to say, how do we build permanently affordable housing in communities, urban communities? And it continues. I mean, and there is a in Boston, there's the Greater Boston Community Land Trust Network that is advocating for more and more local government support for community land trusts and sort of an agenda around collective land ownership. So collective ownership, the commons is a radical concept increasingly in our society. It's like the Boston commons was created a long time ago. People had an ethic for it. I think that ethic is still existing, but it's it's like a weak muscle. Like our democracy muscle, you know, needs to be exercised again. So finding ways to exercise that democracy muscle, worker owned cooperatives. Uh, I've seen them come and go, you know, but there's examples throughout the world, in in Japan, in Italy, and in the Basque region of Spain, where they really thrive and they really show that they can out compete standard capitalist firms. And so. So their potential, I think, is very real. I know know there's a lot of challenges with them as well. So those like collective community ownership of renewable energy, decentralized energy production, I would say would be something else that seems radical. And there's examples of that that have have shown up over the years. Creation of local currencies, it's a fascinating thing that I was part of doing a little pilot experiment. We helped create a farmer's market and then we helped launch a local currency for a year. And it was immediately exciting, more in an imaginative way. But one can imagine moments where it's actually a necessity, like where you have real breakdown of national currencies. And you actually, we've seen that like in the 1980s in, in Britain, there's a lot of local currencies cropped up. In Argentina, when they had a currency collapse, a lot of local currencies cropped up. In the US in the 1930s, a lot of local currencies cropped up it, and people just kept, keep reinventing it. It wasn't like they all studied each other it was more like out of necessity, people figured it out again and again and again. And I think that is a sign that like necessity is the mother of invention. But there is these, the capacity of humans to make these real creative leaps when we have to, when our back's against the wall.
2: And and you've repeated that a couple of times. So I want to come back to that, that like it's going to take us to have our backs against the wall to really make change. But I just want to ask a specific question about... What have been in your experience of the collective ownership of the land trusts, what are the key challenges in collective ownership that you've experienced in that?
0: The key challenge is that people don't really want to negotiate through their conflicts. I mean, that's it's it's scary. We don't have good role models. It's not like we grew up in tribal societies where our elders taught us how to, you know, sit in council and achieve consensus. So there's that aspect of like, oh my God, I'm I'm gonna have to own this piece of land with all these other people and especially if you add in race and class differences and the mistrust that's there for legitimate reasons because history's been really hard and painful yeah it's just inviting people into that work and saying well this is the this is the work of that we need to learn how to do again we need to reinvigorate this democracy muscle so that the next generation has an easier path and hopefully the generation after that even easier and that there really isn't A shortcut. There really isn't no like silver bullet, right? It's just it is it is hard work and we have to build trust and community moves at the speed of trust. And so step into collective ownership with this multiracial coalition. It's for some people, it's the adventure they've been waiting for and they're ready to go. And for other people, it's like, whoa, what are you asking me to get involved in?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think like within that, that hard work, how do you keep people involved? Like you had this fire of like, okay, um, this is my work in the world. But especially people who perhaps have to be really focused on their own survival and, or, you know, through need or just through want, (laughs) aka, you know, the selfish, like, what is the thing that keeps people wanting to be involved? Yeah, I think it really, I think
0: leadership really matters. And when I say leadership, I don't necessarily mean leaders, like I make a distinction, I guess, between Sort of a, people put in positions of authority and power versus leadership, which is something that anyone can exercise. But there is also a quality of some people are more naturally inclined or gifted or skilled in the complexity of multi-stakeholder projects. And without them, projects just don't go. And you can't, you can't always find them. So sometimes projects don't go. But when, when projects do go and go well, it's because there are certain individuals who are able to shoulder some of that burden. Of leadership and put that on their shoulders, and I don't think that humans are self-organizing. I think we have to acknowledge the hard work it takes to organize people, and lift up those leaders and recognize the sacrifices that they're making on behalf of the broader community, so they don't feel alone. And in doing so, and making it transparent, we also can keep them accountable to their values and the goals that they're that they say they're that they're working towards. So. It's better to acknowledge the necessary leadership and support it than to try to submerge it or pretend that it's not there, I think. And then I think people have genuinely heart-opening, transformative experiences building these food forests. I know I did with the Eggleston Community Orchard. I mentioned the young man who was shot and, and, and killed and how that transformed the neighborhood and how that opened me up personally. I then did a project with neighbors on Ellington Street in Dorchester who... When I first got involved, a lot of those neighbors were scared of each other and there was not a strong social fabric in that, on that particular street. And it was through the building of that food forest that neighbors met across diversity. There's some neighbors who had been there for 40 years. There's some folks who were in transitional housing on that street. There's some folks who had just moved there from the Caribbean or from Central Africa. I mean, there's a lot of different cultures and peoples there. And it was in sharing food and creating a garden and imagining it and coming together and laughing and crying through the process of building it, that some healing and community fabric has, has has stitched together. The women who are the leaders of the stewardship team, they wrote me a very nice card, you know, that just affirmed that like the work we're doing really does matter and impacts people in their lives. And that brought tears to my eyes because it's like, yeah. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's the fact that you can feel the purpose of it, that these are like tangible seeds of hope. You know, because they say the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago and the second best time is today. So these are like, we're putting trees in the ground for the future. And that, that tangibility of that hope is so important, I think. Yeah. So I think that is not just something that I experienced, but something that anyone who spends time in a project gets to experience. Like I could tell that story about the Uplands Corner food forest, the Savins food forest, the, the edgewater food forest, just neighbors coming together and feeling that joy of coming together and achieving something together and then taking pride in what they did and the expression, the tangible expression of that. And then how that ripples out and how other people are inspired by that. That I think is what feeds us. I mean, the food too, definitely. And you know, gardening is a fun hobby for, for, for folks, not for everyone, but for a lot of folks. So the food, the flowers, you know the 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 songbirds, all that is part of what feeds us, but definitely that sense of accomplishment and pride that we get from coming together—a
2: visceral way of experiencing a, a shared aim and moving through things that has a kind of tangible outcome.
0: And then you see, you see, it, it does have ripple effects. It inspires, it, it it pulls people into leadership in ways that they never had been before. It takes people who are in leadership and inspires them to sort of step up their game and. Join some other climate leadership initiative that the city's offering. We've seen people sort of go on from here, like the Eggleston Community Orchard. The core neighbors who brought that into existence, three of them were Boston Public School teachers that decided to become full-time farmers. And you know, so sort of bittersweet because they've moved away to get farmland, but also really beautiful to see how it's changed their lives and brought them into the the joy of that work.
2: I feel like, I mean, I can feel palpably the joy and. You know, when you said some, a community that's thriving, being able to kind of like the tangibility of, of actually working together to create thriving plants and, and trees and food that we can eat and that can nourish us. And I also don't want to undercut, it must have taken a hell of a lot of work to establish, you know, the land trust itself and to establish a successful infrastructure that could make that happen and continue to support that happening. And so I just want to yeah. take a moment to acknowledge that and just anything around that hard work of the organization that is kind of like invisible, like there's the outcome, visible and tangible, and here's this hard work of actually making it happen in the background with the kind of the, the boring work of the laws and the, 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 the oh, conflicts yeah. that come up.
0: Yeah, I want I want to like capture what you just said and share that with my staff, because it is a lot of work. and sometimes not fun, sometimes draining and exhausting and painful. Hopefully more often more fun, hopefully as as it goes forward, more graceful and we find more partnerships and community relationships that bring joy and, and add to our lives over time. But there have definitely been some, some dead ends that we've had to go down in order to, you know, I think one of the tricks is just perseverance. And like, I'll give a quick example. This is sort of um, a minor micro example and microcosm, but it's it has the flavor of what I mean is the folks who created the Savin Hill Food Forest, you know, they initially didn't know how to come together as a community group. And they were skeptical of it. And then then there's a lot of joy in building it and planting it and designing it and having their voice, you know, be an input into the process and seeing that manifested, which is a rare experience in the city. And then they were out there planting some beautiful perennial flowers and the next day somebody had stolen them all. And then the next day, some more flowers were stolen. And so this year, we were dealing with the demoralizing impact of vandalism and, and thievery, um, which is just a reality of a big city, I think. You know, there are plant thieves, and, and, and that's just, you know, what are you going to do? It's, it's probably a very small minority of people who are causing vandalism on our sites, but they have an outsized impact on the morale of the stewardship team, which is all volunteer and pouring their heart and soul into the space and taking such pride in what's growing and then only to see it no longer there or destroyed or stolen is a real blow. But then that's where we step in as a staff team with sort of our, you know, in nonprofit speak, our high touch technical assistance. But what that what does that mean? It means we have relationships with people and we listen and we help people vent their anger and their frustration and we we help persevere and we turn towards positive solutions and people overcome. And I think that, experience is one that we don't often give ourselves in this culture of instant gratification, of pushing through hardship and overcoming and getting to the other side of it and learning that you can get there. That's a lesson in resilience that now the entire community around the Savin Hill Food Forest has. And hopefully that continues to carry them through whatever other challenges show up.
2: What carries your staff?
0: We have such committed people (laughs) and good people like who take care of each other. And like what we did before this chat, where you check in on a human level and you really hear about people's lives. And we got each other's backs. And I think we're still learning each other. We just hired new staff this year, and we're going to be hiring new staff next year if all goes according to plan. We're, we're on a growth trajectory. We still need individual donors, especially Bostonians, to step up and make multi-year commitment to being in partnership with us on a funding level because that's going to allow us to hire staff and pay them good wages and benefits which is essential if we're going to have a diverse team. So what carries the staff, I think, is just like, you know, we we definitely in the hiring process, like we found people who like, this is their core value. Like we we hired people who were going to chain themselves to trees to to make sure those trees weren't cut down, who've been fighting for, you know, decades for affordable housing and resources for their communities that have been underserved and neglected and who just get the meaning of this work. I mean, I think that is... I don't, know, I don't know what that is. I mean, you asked me that question, too, about myself. Like, where, where do we come from? Where, why do we throw ourselves into this? Why not do something else to do with our time on Earth? I don't really know <laughs> the answer to that question. Like, I think it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Like, maybe we're just deranged in a, a social way.
2: <laughs> I can't believe that I'm leaving this question to the last five minutes of the podcast Money. Money, money, money. Both Adam and I have been co-executive directors of a not-for-profit and the relationship between donors and projects and money and so much of the work that we do with not-for-profits. It's like when the rubber hits the road, when it comes to money, that's where the tunnel vision kind of comes in. And it's like, what is your experience of that, the money side of things? And how does that change what you do or not?
0: Money is important. I mean, as I was saying, if we want to have a diverse team, we need to be able to pay competitive salaries so that people of different backgrounds have the opportunity to to work with us. We can't assume that everyone has the privilege to be underpaid, And and I mean that sincerely. I think the challenge is how to diversify your sources of money and how to stay true to your mission. I think this is an opportunity. The Boston Food Forest Coalition is an opportunity for anyone who's excited to get involved in partnership with community grassroots leaders who are directly at the intersection of racial justice and climate resilience. You know, like if that is your jam, this is the opportunity you've been waiting for because we're here doing it. And we've had donors who've also gotten very involved as volunteers. So that would be one way to sort of try to square the circle in terms of authenticity and having real relationships with folks. We've got People who, who are only donors and are far away, and they, they get to take pride in the fact that they're supporting something and they don't put a lot of strings attached, which really lets the community continue to lead it. And I think that's important as well. And we've been really blessed to find those types of relationships. We have relationships with the city of Boston where they kick in money. So it's great the city is meeting that bottom-up grassroots energy with top-down resources. I mean, that's a rare moment, I think, in city politics. And so that's a beautiful thing that Boston's able to do right now. This is a legacy that we're building for future generations of Bostonians, so there's an opportunity for people who care about that and want to be part of of creating a legacy for all of Boston to step up and step in with with their resources. And some people really do have capacity to give, and that's that's amazing that they do, and, and quite generous when they do. I like to think of it as part of the process of redistributing resources. At one point, we were going out to Framingham to get horse manure from a family that happened to have a horse barn, and they had a pile of horse manure. It's very, very valuable for repairing broken damaged soils. And so we talked, we jokingly talked about how we're redistributing the wealth from the suburbs back to the urban community. I think there's some truth to that. You know, I mean that's a joking example, but I think the, the overall point is there is some truth to that, and there's dynamics around that, that are that are problematic and the whole nonprofit sector struggles with. Like, you know, it can devolve into Parading people around to try to raise money and that's something we're committed to absolutely not doing that and to find a better way to be In right relationship with our all our stakeholders and to really try to stitch a coalition together I mean, that's partly in our name Boston Food Forest coalition and it takes everybody to make that coalition happen
2: Adam final Cole.
1: I will just say thank you for the work that you're doing and also today your the transparency both the joy that you're bringing and the transparency that you've brought to this conversation have made me feel, even though what you're doing is so big and so complex and so courageous, I felt on the level with you the whole time. And and I appreciate that in a conversation and just with another being on the planet with you uh, at this time, knowing that you're out there doing the work. So thank you for that.
2: I, I have this... partly because when I read your article, I had a very visceral image of this future vision of the world. And if you were to step forward in time and to imagine the future vision of the world that the Boston Food Forest Coalition has built, what does it look like? What does it feel like? How is that fire lit? I think partly my source
0: of hope about the future is that the future is fundamentally unknowable. And I think that's a good thing. We live in a world, in a universe of emergence, and there's always the potential for emergent surprises. could be negative, but it also could be positive. So we really don't know what's going to happen. And the other thing is I believe, and if you believe as I do, that humans are agents, that we have some agency in, in the world, we have some creative power in the world, we, we have choice-making ability, then, then the future is composed of choices we haven't made yet. And so to the extent that we have agency, we get to make these choices. So the future is not someplace we're going, but something that we're actively creating. And my hope is that we find a way to stitch together a racially just, sustainable local food system regionally in, in New England, maybe in the Northeast, involving New York and Quebec, and, and that we, in doing that, we're paying people living wages, we're growing food sustainably and healthfully, restoring land and nature, we're inspiring each other by the sheer triumph of such a, such a thing. And we're able to reach out with generosity and support to other regions and other parts of the world that are doing the same work. And we're able to, to act increasingly in a web of mutual aid and that we rebuild the fabric of global community that way. I know that's kind of vague and also very ambitious at the same time. So I'm not trying to pretend like it's a, an easy path or even a likely outcome. I, I, I just think it's possible. And so to stand in the space of possibility, I think is increasingly important, especially as the global emergency will deepen. It is deepening currently. It will get much harder before it gets easier and it'll be very easy to give into despair. So we need to remind each other to stay in the space of possibility.
2: Well, thank you for the reminder and the possibility and for putting your hands in the dirt. And also, again, just want to acknowledge all of the hard work behind the scenes that it takes to do that, to bring that possibility to people and to encourage them also to just put their hands in the dirt um, with each other. So thank you so much for your story and for the time today.
0: Yeah, Miriam, Adam, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about my work and to to honor it in the way that you've done and to really hear and listen and be present. It's very inspiring. It's very beautiful to see the work you're doing in the world and lifting up these stories and also just facilitating and inviting people to lead with vulnerability. I think we got to remember our humanity in all of this. So it is hard work and I'm grateful that, to be here. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Beyond Listening Podcast. For more information on how to adapt to a world of rapid change and flux for yourself, your organization, and your community, visit us at WeAreOpenCircle.com dot com